Okay, don't forget, bug your parents. Okay, so uh, we've been uh, in a certain portion of the Bible this summer as we're working our way. And you know, some parts of the Bible are uh, what are called apocalyptic. And what it means is that they're about historical events, but those embedded in those historical events, God has revealed the future. So apocalyptic literature, it's called. There's certain parts of the Bible uh, that are apocalyptic like that. And uh, the portion of the Bible that we're studying this summer, known as the book of Daniel in the older part of the Bible, is that kind of literature. And so when you understand it, it really helps us understand um, what's going on, what's really going on from God's perspective in our day and what will happen in the future. And, uh, you know, um, Don Greer is uh, kind of an artist, and uh, he really helped me. He said, you know, most pictures, when you paint a picture, have a background and a foreground, right? You have a background, and it's the sky and the mountains or whatever, and then you have a foreground, it's a house and and whatever. And uh, I think living life as a Christian is very similar. Like, we have a background that's God's perspective on everything, and then we have a foreground. And a lot of times the problem is we become so absorbed in the foreground that we can't see the forest for the trees because it just takes all of our effort just to keep up with what's in the foreground. And uh, Don Greer, this artist, said to me one time, he said, you know, whenever you paint a picture, you always have to make sure there's access from the foreground to the background. And so he said, like, look at this. And he had a picture, and it had an old house in Vermont that he had uh, painted, and then it had a fence, and then in the fence was a gate, and the gate was always open. And it was always a way to get from the foreground of your life into the background of your life. And so I feel like apocalyptic literature is like the background of what's really going on from God's perspective. And a lot of people are just so busy with their everyday lives, they don't take the time to really walk through the gate and and think about, well, what does this all mean? And where is it all going? And uh, how can I put into perspective my everyday life up against uh, what God has revealed about the big picture? And so um, another way to talk about that is how can I connect the story of the little story of my life with a big story of what God's doing uh, from creation until the end of time? And so last week we saw from Daniel chapter 3 that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king who God raised up to take and discipline his people, Israel. And so they came and they took uh, the Israelites captive. Daniel was one of them. And uh, we saw last week that this king, King Nebuchadnezzar, God came to him and spoke to him. But King Nebuchadnezzar resisted what God had to say and did his own thing. Now, that's not unlike a lot of people today, right? I mean, God is a speaking God. He's not silent. He sent his son. He sent his spirit. He's written his word. God is a speaking God, and he's speaking to everybody who will listen. But most people, like Nebuchadnezzar, God speaks, and we resist what God has to say. And so God told Nebuchadnezzar, you remember, about this giant Gentile statue uh, which represented what was going to happen in the future. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar turns right... I'm just going to call him Neb because it's... (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar, um, you know, uh, turns right around and he makes a statue of himself in place of what God said was going to happen. It's almost like a, a defying, a resisting of um, what God uh, really wants to say. But eventually, uh, we saw last week in verse 29 of chapter 3, 
that Nebuchadnezzar was um, forced um, to kind of um, give up. And to, here's what he said. He said, therefore, I'm going to make a decree. Uh, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Remember those three guys were thrown in the industrial furnace and, and uh, somebody like the Son of God came down and it's a pre-incarnate uh, uh, visitation from Jesus, you know, before Christmas. Uh, there's several of those through the Old Testament and so forth. But notice, as Nebuchadnezzar talks, um, he, it's still, you know, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. It's not Neb's God. It's their God. And, uh, you know, I don't want anybody saying anything about... So, Neb is still, um, you know, a polytheist, meaning he believes in many gods, okay? Uh, Neb is still uh, riding around in his chariot with a bumper sticker on the back, coexist. You know, he just, he's a polytheist. He thinks there's a lot of different gods, and the true God is just one more. So this morning, we come to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, there's been a radical change in Neb. I mean, he's had a radical change. Now, it's important to realize, and it's really hard if, if you don't study this, you don't understand this, but remember there was a big gap of time between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Well, there's also a big gap of time between chapter 3 and chapter 4. So where we're jumping in today in chapter 4, a, a lot of years, maybe up to 10 years, 9, 10 years have gone by. And, um, you know, uh, from chat, the end of chapter 3, and this whole uh, chapter, chapter 4, is... Um, Nebuchadnezzar sort of reflecting on his life. Nebuchadnezzar's like uh, maybe in his early 70s now when he's writing this, although he's reflecting on a time that came when he was like late 50s, early 60s. And so Daniel is like 55 now. Remember when we first met him, he was a teenage kid. But like 40 years have gone by. So, you know, you add it together and he's like 55. Nebuchadnezzar's pushing 70s, kind of towards the end of his life. And uh, he's toward the end of his reign. And it's a time of reflection for him. And so the whole chapter 4 is written by King Nebuchadnezzar. It's kind of interesting. Some people object to that being real scripture because it's not written by a believer. Although by the end of the chapter, he does become a believer. And that's the radical change that takes place. And he's going to tell us how it happens. So he's, you know, he's looking back over his life. And he's thinking about the ways that God interacted with his life. And he's putting it together. And so it's a really interesting uh, chapter. It's told by the king himself. It's like he's sharing his testimony of what happened between him and God. And I would tell you that this is one of the most ancient testimonies known to mankind. It's kind of like a spiritual autobiography. Uh, Pastor Dan is associated with this group that helps people do spiritual autobiographies. And uh, if you've been in a small group with him, you've probably been through this process. But you just sit down. And you think about how God has interacted with you from as far back as you can remember all the way up to the present. And you just think, like, how has God orchestrated? Who did God give me for parents? You know, what experiences have I had? What, uh, what has God taught me along the way? How did he do it? And so on. And that's what, that's what this is, like a spiritual autobiography. And uh, you'll note that it begins and ends with praise, or I would say worship. It begins and it ends uh, the whole chapter begins and ends with worship. And, um, but how did it happen? How did the king, the secular king, get from being a pagan king, 
uh, to actually uh, worshiping the true God. So here's what happened. We'll jump in at verse 4. Daniel chapter 4, verse 4. Here's the deal. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I was chilling out, man, and things were good. Right? That's what he's saying. I was at ease in my house, and I was prospering in my palace. It's probably the summertime, right? He was happy with his life, and um, he's at ease. He's at rest. He's prospering. Things were good. He's like 70-ish. He won his wars. He built his cities. Um, He expanded his kingdom to include every nation and language of his day. Uh, He's on top. He's got uh, soldiers to protect him. He's got servants to wait on him. He's got money to buy anything he wants. I mean, so much money that he coats the statue of himself with pure gold, right? And uh, as he says here, he's in his palace. Truth is, he had three palaces, this guy, okay? Talk about living large. The palace, the main palace in Babylon, check this out. The main palace in Babylon covered six square miles, not acres, miles, Okay, so I clocked it this morning from the Route 8 connector on 95 to church, all the way to church, is only four miles. I think you'd have to go into the middle of Westport before you had six miles. So imagine six miles, six miles, six miles, and six miles. That's the chunk of real estate that his palace was on. And not only that, it had a moat, okay, 50 feet deep, okay, that was fed by the Euphrates River, which ran through his property all around the place, real big, thick walls. And his palace where he lived was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He had built the hanging gardens, the famous hanging gardens of Babylon. Okay? And just as a side note, Saddam Hussein, who sort of fancied himself as a resurrected Nebuchadnezzar kind of guy, um, uh, was actually uh, excavating. The, The site is excavated by archaeologists. But he was rebuilding it for himself until America invaded Iraq and interrupted him. He already had rebuilt the, there's a gate, there's a huge gate, and then there's uh, called Procession Street that goes right to the palace, you know, for parades and stuff like that. And he was rebuilding that, and President Bush, believe it or not, actually uh, solicited large amounts of money from several countries, including the United Nations, to try to enable him to finish the project. Now, it's significant because, again, this is apocalyptic literature. It's talking about things to come as well as things that were. And when you get to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, probably the biggest mystery in the Bible that people have all kinds of opinions about, books have been written about, and so forth, is that there's going to be one last world power before Jesus comes back. And everybody wants to know, well, what's the identity of that? And in the Bible, it's called Mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon. And, um, well, let's see how the rest of this uh, chapter uh, folds out. God had spoken to Nebuchadnezzar, and, uh, you know, uh, he first spoke to him in a dream and said, look, you're, uh, this is, these are the powers that are going to come after you. You're going to be done in a little while. Uh, the Medes and the Persians are going to come and take over and so forth. But he wouldn't, Nebuchadnezzar refused to listen to God uh, because he was a willful guy. And uh, so God spoke to him again. And uh, the second time, uh, you remember, like we said, Jesus came down and uh, uh, rescued those guys, the three friends of Daniel from the industrial furnace. 
And, uh, but it's still, even though Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that, it still didn't humble him. It still didn't change him. He just continued to do his own thing as if God never said anything. And so now God is going to speak again. Verse 5, uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 5. Uh, I saw a dream that made me afraid, Daniel says, or Nebuchadnezzar says. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, uh, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So now God's speaking a third time to this guy, directly speaking to him. And uh, speaking to him, I mean, it says a dream, but uh, I'm going to say once you understand it, it's more like a nightmare. All right? So a picture of this guy now. He's the king. He's like the, the single most powerful person in the entire world at that time. And everything's going great. Can you identify with this? You know, there are days when you get up in the morning and you're like, wow, you know, everything's just perfect. You know, I like my job and I have money in the bank and the car keeps running and the kids are being great. And, you know, I'm just like on top of the world. And the next day you wake up and the whole thing is in a heap. Can you relate to that? That's this guy. He's saying, you know, 10 years ago, I was on top of the world. Everything was fabulous. It was great, you know. And then I had this dream, and my whole life came unglued. And I was afraid, he says. You know, I was scared. It made me afraid. Um, And it alarmed me, and so forth. And so, um, God speaks to him again in this kind of nightmare. And um, God allows the interpretation. You know, when, when God gives the dream, God also gives the interpretation. And that's why God is so against um, palm readers, uh, astrology people, uh, psychics. You know, God says, look, if you want to know the future, ask me. I wrote it in my word. I gave it to my prophets. Don't go someplace else, but ask me. I'm the one who controls the future. And so don't go to those psychics and astrologers and fortune tellers and people like that. Uh, come to me. And it's important for us to understand that because every once in a while, you know, I'll get a Christian and they'll say, well, you know, I just was kind of curious and I was on vacation and so I went to this palm reader and they told me X, Y, and Z and so forth. And Jesus said when he was here in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, that when we approach the end times, here's what's going to be a lot of. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Even Christians, there's going to be such a strong influence from the other side that people will be tricked and fooled. If you don't know what God has to say and you can't interpret the times in which you're living according to God's word, you become susceptible to these false Christs. And, And verse 25, Jesus says, look, now I'm telling you this ahead of time. Don't be fooled. Don't be a sucker. You know, don't be caught up in all of that. Um, Ask me and I'll tell you. And so uh, I think there will be a lot of people very confused. There will be a lot of people who take advantage of that uh, in the end times. And um, these people are usually partially right but majorly wrong. They're like a cult. I often ask myself, well, why is it that so many people could be attracted to a cult? Well, because there's a partial truth, but it's not the whole truth. Right? Like Islam will acknowledge Jesus as a prophet but they won't acknowledge him as the son of God. There's a partial truth, but there's not the whole truth. And so, so this Nebuchadnezzar, um, I want to say, man, this guy's a slow learner. 
Look what happens to him. Um, next verse, verse 6. Nebuchadnezzar's talking here, and he says, So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, they all came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. I'm like, Neb, you've already been down this road. Why are you calling all of those turkeys in? They couldn't do it the first time. What makes you think they're going to do it this time? Why didn't you just call Daniel right off the bat? Next verse, they can't do anything. And so verse 8 says, At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God. My God. Remember, he renames the people according to his God. And uh, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. So it's like I called all of these guys in, and I think, well, why didn't you just call Daniel right off the bat? And it occurred to me that probably the reason that he didn't call Daniel right off the bat is because he probably didn't want to hear directly from God. Sometimes I ask myself, why is it that people don't read the Bible? And, of course, if you ask them, they always say, oh, well, I don't have time, I'm busy, blah, blah, blah. That's not really true. Tell yourself the truth. The truth is, often, I don't want to hear directly from God. You know, if you tell me something, if the pastor says something, I can disagree with him. But if I read it in the Bible myself and the Spirit of God convicts me about the truth, now what am I going to do? So I just stay away from it. And I just get it all secondhand. I don't want God himself to actually speak to me because I know there's no way out from that. And uh, perhaps Nebuchadnezzar called all those other uh, people in. I mean, he, he did the exact same thing the first time God gave him a dream. And so why would he do that uh, again? Anyway, that's what he does. But eventually he um, uh, has Daniel come in. And it's very interesting uh, that he acknowledges that Daniel is uh, the head guy. And uh, not only that, but he notices that the spirit, the Holy Spirit of the holy gods is in Daniel. Now, the word holy just means different. It means set apart. It means unique. Now, out of all the gods that Nebuchadnezzar talks about, this is the only god, Daniel's god, that he refers to as holy. In other words, what uh, Neb is recognizing is that there's something very different about Daniel's God than all the other gods. It's starting to dawn on him that Daniel's got something. Now, in other places, we've already seen, Nebuchadnezzar calls uh, God uh, the God of heaven. And then when uh, he saw uh, those three guys in the furnace, and he looked and he saw a fourth guy, he recognized that, to me, appears like the son of the gods. And now he's recognized the spirit of God. And so here you are, hundreds of years before Jesus is ever born, and uh, you know the word Trinity, the church that you're worshiping in this morning, that word is not in the Bible. But everywhere in the Bible, God manifests himself as a father, a son, and a spirit. And here we are, way back in the Old Testament. And here's Nebuchadnezzar, he's probably not even conscious uh, that he's doing it, but he's recognizing the triune God. He's, he's, he's being exposed to the true God, the secular king. And, uh, and, and here he recognizes that this spirit is, is in Daniel and that he's holy. He's different. He's, he's from someplace else. And uh, it's important for us to kind of recognize that because, again, 
um, religions like Islam, you know, use that against, you know, like God having a son. No, God is one. What are you, polytheists? And it's important that we can be able to answer that question. No, there's only one God. But this one God manifests himself in three different persons. Uh, Father, Son, and Spirit. Not three gods, one God who reveals himself three different ways. Okay, verse 9. So Nebuchadnezzar is, uh, remember, writing this. Uh, o Belshazzar, uh, chief of the magicians, he acknowledges that Daniel, Belshazzar, his name for him, uh, is chief of the magicians because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. He acknowledges it again. I know that the spirit that's in you is very different than the spirit that's in all the other magicians and fortune tellers and psychics and all the rest of it. And I just paused to ask the question, you know, do people recognize that there's a different spirit in us? Do people recognize that the spirit of the one true living God resides in his people? And do people recognize about us, you know, there's something different about you. You have a different spirit about you. You have a different worldview. You have a different approach. You have a different, you know, and you know, a lot of us are like, oh, man, I don't want to be different. Well, too bad. Because we are. We're called out to be different. And part of the difference is that the spirit of the holy God uh, resides in us. And he says, uh, oh, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Uh, And then he goes on to tell the dream, verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. This is a a nightmare about a tree. (laughs) And uh, he begins to explain this. The dream is about a tree. Now, Sometimes the Bible uses a tree as a symbol for a person. If you just think, for example, of Psalm 1, uh, a person who is blessed by God is like a tree planted by rivers of water. A tree that's planted by a river is a happy tree, right? It blooms, it has leaves, it's always got water to drink and so forth, it makes fruit. It's a happy tree. And so this is a dream about a tree. Sometimes... Uh, A tree is used in the Bible to describe a nation. Like in Matthew chapter 24, the fig tree that Jesus curses is representative of the nation of Israel. I came, there's no fruit here, cut it down. Be done, you know? And so sometimes it's about a person, sometimes it's about a kingdom or a nation, but trees are used like that. So look what happens in this dream, verse 11. Uh, The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, the whole known world. You know, had something to do with this tree. Um, Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit was abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from this tree. This is the dream. Now he's, you know, relaying the dream. It's about Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. It's about his fame and his power and his authority and his accomplishments. 
It's about Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom feeding the whole then known world. It was a splendid kingdom. It was an abundant kingdom. It was a blessed kingdom. God blessed Nebuchadnezzar so he could provide his creation with food and so that he could discipline his own children, the nation of Israel. And so Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom grew uh, massively. But watch this. Things are about to change. Verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a watcher, angels watching over me. All right, A watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. Now notice, he's able to distinguish. This isn't a father, a son, a spirit. This is an angel uh, that comes from heaven. We know in chapters 8 and 9, the angel Gabriel, one of the lead angels, comes and visits Daniel directly and reveals visions to him about the future. Uh, but this is an angel that he saw in his dream or in his nightmare, and he calls him a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, I don't know how you feel about angels. You know, we talk about uh, guardian angels and that people have an angel watching over them. And uh, maybe you've had experience. I've talked to people, several people who've had different experiences who are convinced, you know, that at certain uh, junctures in their life, there was an angel that came down and protected them from this or that. And uh, it was a great assurance for them when uh, the angel didn't protect them that something happened that was a disaster. Uh, They had confidence that the angel was watching over and somehow it was the will of God for his purposes to allow whatever it is that came their way to happen. Otherwise, the angel would have prevented it. And so you might think about uh, in your life different things uh, that have happened to you and just ask yourself how God might have been involved. Uh, The word angel, by the way, translates into messenger. Messenger, that's what the word angel actually means. It's a messenger from God. A messenger, that's primarily the role of an angel. And um, this angel came down, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, verse 14. Uh, He proclaimed out loud, and he said this, chop down the tree. Uh Uh-oh. Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the beasts uh, flee from under it, the birds, you know, from its branches, But leave the stump and its roots. Whack down the tree. Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom are about to go through the chipper. Lop off the branches. Scatter the leaves. Get rid of the fruit. Your kingdom's about to be done. And so, um, pretty interesting. Um, This watcher from heaven, this angel, and, and again, you know, apocalyptic literature, when you go to the book of Revelation, there's angels all over the place. I counted 35 different angels in the book of Revelation. So when it comes time for the end times and the judgments of God, there's seven angels that blow the trumpets, there's seven angels that dump the bowls of God's judgment. Uh, Angels are involved in a major way in the end times. And so that's going to ramp up. It's going to come a time uh, where that angelic activity, and again, this is all... You know, Nebuchadnezzar is sort of a type of antichrist that is given to us so that we can understand something of what it's going to be like uh, at the end of time. And so the Bible uh, is very clear about this, that uh, angels will be very active uh, at the end times. And uh, they're especially involved in bringing uh, God's judgment. And so this watcher angel comes and says out loud that you, Nebuchadnezzar, and your world power, your kingdom, is going to be cut down like a tree. And um, it's going to be a disaster, okay? 
But guess what? It's not going to be permanent. He said, um, he said, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Uh, the beasts, the birds take off, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. Now notice verse 15 especially. Leave the stump of its roots in the earth uh, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Now watch. Let him. We shift from uh, a tree to a person. The vision is of a tree. But in verse 15, we go from a tree to a person. Remember we said that a tree can often uh, be representative of a person. And uh, you notice here uh, that the angel starts to talk about this tree as a him. The dream is about a man. The tree is not an it. It's a person. Um, It's a man. It's a him. The dream is about a man, and uh, it's about Nebuchadnezzar personally. And uh, this man, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to suffer a mental breakdown. He's going to encounter a mental disability. And um, when you read it and, and see what happens, um, it's, it's uh, very sad, but he's going to lose the mind of a human being and he's going to instead have it replaced with the mind of an animal. Okay? Um, and for seven periods of time. And um, when you uh, look this up, if you Google it, uh, you can find it. There's actually a disease called uh, boanthropy. Boanthropy. It's where a person thinks that they are a bovine, like a cow or an ox. And they start to eat grass, and they start to um, walk on all fours, and uh, it's an actual uh, psychiatric uh, disorder. And so um, that's what's going to happen. And you'll notice there in the second part of verse 16, um, his mind's going to be changed from a man's to a beast, and uh, seven periods of time are going to pass over him. When you do the math, you find out that seven periods of time is seven years. Seven years this lasts for Nebuchadnezzar. And that's important because um, there are other portions of Daniel, when we get into the prophetic sections, uh, where um, uh, time is measured, it's called times. Time, times, and a half time. And so, uh, like, for example, in chapter 7 and uh, in verse 25, when um, we're talking about the end times, um, notice it says um, that he shall speak words against the Most High, talking about the Antichrist, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Christian's going to be worn out, you know, dealing with this guy. And um, um, shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hands for a time times and a half time, exactly three and a half years. Now, when Jesus was here, he said this last seven-year period of history is divided exactly in half, three and a half years, right to the day, uh, when the Antichrist will build an idol, just like an image, like Nebuchadnezzar did, and uh, will demand the worship of the whole world, or you'll be killed. You'll be you know, pulled apart limb from limb and so on. But time, times, and a half time are years. And so it's important for us to catch that from this Uh, encounter of God with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. So then verse uh, 17 um, goes on, and uh, you notice uh, what happens next here. Um, 
The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. (laughs) So this is great. Like, it doesn't only tell us what's going to happen, but why is this happening? Why did this happen to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, look what that verse says, verse 17. He says, this sentence is by decree uh, to the end that the living may know. Who are the living? I think it's us. I think it's each generation from the time of Daniel all the way to today. This was written so that people like you and I can know. Can know what? Can know that the God of heaven rules over the kingdoms of men. Now, you might like President Trump. You might not. You might have voted for Hillary Clinton. You might not have. But the really important thing for you to know is that that stuff doesn't happen by accident. That the God of heaven is overseeing the kingdoms of men, the nations of people, toward his own ends, and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's either a comfort If you're a believer, you're like, oh, I am so glad this is all in somebody's hands that's responsible. But if you're not a believer, it's really frightening that somebody's in charge of this and I have no clue what they're all about or who they even are, right? Uh, That's a problem. And so, um, uh, but you need to know this. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. You don't have to agree with authority, but you have to respect it. Let every, this is Paul writing to the Roman church, you know, now Paul's in jail, you know, with the Romans for a while and all of that. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, it's a tremendous comfort to know that God is orchestrating things. When you watch the world news and you see what's going on and you're trying to make sense of everything, kind of asking, like, where are we on the timetable and what's, you know, been going on? Uh, There's a context, a background in which we can place our current lives and understand what's happening, uh, thanks to uh, this book of Daniel as well as other uh, parts. And um, notice, what this is all about is not about Neb being a great leader. (laughs) Look what Neb finally admits, that this God sets over his kingdoms the lowliest of people. (laughs) He's in the process of being humbled here. Right? He's in the process of being humbled. He's saying that uh, this God who set him that he is nothing compared to this guy. He's finally starting to get the picture. He's finally getting the idea that he doesn't really have the power, he doesn't really have the control, he doesn't really uh, have the authority that he thinks he does. He's been given it by God. It's not about Nebuchadnezzar being a great leader. He sets over his kingdom sometimes the lowliest of people. And Nebuchadnezzar is admitting that he's finite, that he's weak, that he's one of the lowliest of creatures, right? And... um, Again, uh, he recognizes that there's a different spirit in Daniel, verse 18, 
Uh, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belshazzar, um, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, and here he goes again, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Holy, separate, unique, set apart, different. Like I had all these other people, have all these other gods, but your God is something special, something different. So he's beginning to recognize that. And um, again, he's writing this, you know. There's something different about uh, the spirit that's in Daniel. And uh, verse uh, 19, so now Daniel is going to respond, okay, to, to the king's nightmare. So Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, uh, was dismayed for a while. Daniel was blown away. Daniel listened to the dream. He understood it instantly, what God was saying. And uh, he was blown away by it, and his thoughts alarmed him. Because here's Daniel, now for the last, you know, 40-something years, uh, he's been living with King Nebuchadnezzar. He's been one of his top guys. Uh, life has been going on. The king has been accomplishing all this stuff. And, and uh, so uh, Daniel, or Belshazzar, answers, and he says, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. He's like, I wish this was about your enemies. I really wish this was about somebody else. And, uh, and then he goes on, and, uh, the, and he just, verse 20 and 21, pretty much just repeat what um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar told him about the dream. But at verse 22, look what he says. It's you. It is you. This dream, this tree, it's about you, O king. Um, you're the one who's grown strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with dew of heaven and uh, his portions be with the beast until seven periods of time pass over and so forth. Uh, this is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the most high God which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you will be made to eat grass like an ox and you will be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you get it. Till you know that the Most High <coughs> excuse me, rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You're going to become like an animal uh, for seven years until you understand, until you get it. And this is by God's uh, decree. Now, it's interesting. I don't know what to make of it, but I just toss it out for you. Uh, the end times kingdom is called a beast. Nebuchadnezzar is sentenced to be this beast-like uh, person, and, uh, but he will uh, return uh, to the throne. Um, Look at this, verse 26. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you uh, from the time you know that heaven rules. Once you get it, you'll know because God will restore you for a very short, brief period of time. Uh, but eventually, you're going to acknowledge uh, the God of heaven, and only then will you get back uh, your kingdom, and only for a very brief time. And so Daniel um, offers the king some advice upon all of this. Verse 27, uh, Daniel uh, says to the king, uh, 
Well, he says, you know, um, showing mercy. Uh, where is it? Verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Uh, break off your, from your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy uh, to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel's like, look, two, two pieces of advice for you on, the, uh, on God talking to you. Number one, get rid of your sins, but replace it with righteousness. I don't know if you've ever tried to get rid of a sin, but if you just try to get rid of the sin and don't replace it with God's righteousness, you're just like wasting your time. He's like, get rid of your sins. Now, there's a lot of sins that we could uh, just go through Nebuchadnezzar's life and talk about, uh, but I think uh, the essence of his um, sin, his major issue, was pride. Here, God had done all this for Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar thought it was him. And so uh, he uh, didn't worship God, but he worshiped himself. And so uh, the first thing Daniel says is you should repent. Uh, Change your thinking. Stop the way you're going and turn it around. And uh, God is giving you an opportunity perhaps to change here, but there's no hint that uh, he changes. And, you know, a lot of people make this mistake. Um, God speaks to them. They know it in their heart, in their spirit. They feel it. God is saying something to them that he wants to change in their life, but then they don't do anything about it. Right? Haven't you had that experience? I, I know that God has spoke to me about something he wants me to do, and I just don't do anything about it. You know? And, uh, you know, the Bible says faith without works. You can believe that God's speaking to you. You can believe that God wants you to do X, Y, and Z, and so forth. But if you don't do it, faith without works, that kind of faith, it's dead. It doesn't do you any good. That's not a living faith. You know, faith is trusting God. And my goodness, if God speaks to us, we should probably do it. Don't you think? And so Daniel's like, I got some advice for you. You know, be like Jonah. Remember Jonah? Jonah's like, God spoke to him, and he's like, I don't really want to do that, so I'm going the other way. Well, then he, God gave him a taxi ride, an Uber ride, right back to where God <laughs> sent him in the first place. And, uh, you know, he kind of changed his mind, and, and uh, he did what he was supposed to do, and, and so on. And so, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing uh, that uh, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar is, um, you know, you should serve. You should serve the poor. All around you, there's a world that's hurting, just like us. All around us, there's, a, there's kids who are going back to school whose parents have no idea how am I going to get them crayons and pencils and a piece of paper to write on, right? All around us. And so you should get away from that hard heart and, and be generous. Take the five T's and find a way uh, to fill a knapsack for a kid going back to school or whatever. But uh, Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar, you know, if you do this, if you repent, if you change... Maybe God will not jump on you so fast. Maybe he'll extend your time of prosperity. And so um, remember now, Nebuchadnezzar is writing all of this himself. So look at this, next verse. Um, All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 29, at the end of 12 months. So God speaks, Daniel interprets, 12 months later. Now, I know you've done this. Right? Because I've done this. Um, Nebuchadnezzar hears from God, hears the interpretation, but doesn't do anything. There's no indication that he does anything that Daniel suggests or anything like that. Nothing really changes. And so what happens? You know, well, a day goes by. I still got my right mind. <laughs> I'm not a beast. I'm not thinking eating grass like an ox and so forth. A week goes by, a month goes by. Oh, my goodness, six months ago it was when Daniel told me this was going to happen to me. Nothing's happened to me. 
A year goes by from the time that God said this was going to happen to him, and nothing happens. This is how people are with prophecy. You know, God's put it in the Bible about, you know what, uh, this is what's going to happen, so orient your life according to the truth that God has spoken. And people are like, you know, <laughs> man, I heard that when I was a kid, Daniel. Nothing's happened. Everything's the same. Remember, that's one of the criticisms Peter brings up. People say, oh, you Christians, you're all excited about this pie-in-the-sky God who's going to come back and, you know, get rid of all the evil and change the whole world and all of that. And, and uh, man, I've been living with that story for 40, 50 years, and nothing's changed. Nothing's happened, and so I don't worry about it. I don't even think about it, and so on. Well, look what happens. Verse 29 told Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of 12 months, at the end of a year, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered, and he said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. How oh, I got that love and feeling back again, right? That I had, you know, 10 years ago. And while the words were still on the king's mouth, didn't even get to finish saying his words, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you get it that the Most High God rules and means business, uh, rules over the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, And he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. He became the bird man of Babylon. (laughs) He lost his mind. Um, And, uh, you know, um, God is patient. But God will do what his word says he will do. He's patient. He waits. But he will do what he said he will do. And uh, while the words were on his tongue, judgment day came. Um, God had appointed a time. And again, God is patient. But God will do it. And you know, pride is one of the, one of the deadliest sins. In um, Proverbs uh, chapter 6, you're familiar with this passage? There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to God. He just hates these things. The first one is pride. Calls it haughty eyes. Haughty eyes, pride. Remember Nebuchadnezzar is like, wow, my kingdom that I built for my glory, my majesty, my hanging gardens, yada, yada. Pride, a haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, uh, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers, gossip. Seven things God hates. And uh, the first one is pride, because pride leads to so many other things. And, and uh, in Proverbs chapter 16, in verse 5, everybody who is arrogant in their heart is an abomination to the Lord. An abomination, right? Um, be assured he will not go unpunished. Verse 18, pride goes before destruction. Pride goes before the fall, right? And a haughty spirit before a fall. 
and, and so on. And we could go all through Proverbs and many other places, but pride is what causes us uh, to resist God. You remember in James uh, chapter 4 and verse 6, uh, James talks about this as well. Um, he gives more grace, and therefore it says God opposes the proud. There's nothing that resists God more than pride. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so Nebuchadnezzar was in the process of being humbled. Uh, it took um, seven years, and um, uh, God had to do this to teach him who's in control. Really, God did it to save him, to save him from judgment. Uh, God's uh, judgment was a delayed opportunity uh, and again, the Bible talks about this in terms of end times as well. Uh, Peter talks about it specifically um, in Second Peter chapter three, verse eight. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Uh, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should uh, reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. The day of judgment will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies uh, will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and its works that are done on it will be exposed. God is patient. But what he says will happen. And the day of the Lord will, in fact, um, come. Uh, so the king, this most powerful person, and it's so sad that, uh, you know, uh, we don't listen. Uh, to what God is saying, because the truth is, there's no reason for anybody to have to experience the judgment of God, because Jesus already took our place on the cross and bore the judgment of God for us, and that anybody who will just listen to God and understand this sacrifice that God's or God wants to give us this as a gift called salvation away from the judgment of God, rescued us like uh, he rescued those three guys out of the furnace. And God wants to do that. And so there's no reason for people to experience the judgment that the Bible describes as absolutely horrible that's going to come upon this world. But people don't listen. Here we have a speaking God, but people don't want to listen to what he has to say. And so King Nebuchadnezzar was like this for seven years. And uh, when we finally get to the uh, end of this passage in... Um, the next uh, verse, verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, listen to this, lifted my eyes to heaven. Man, think of what that means. He spent his whole life looking down. He spent the last seven years like an ox, you know, looking for something to eat, looking down. He probably spent the first part of his life looking around horizontally at all the people in the foreground of his life. But finally, he lifts his eyes toward heaven. And he looks for God. And God has been there all along, trying to coach him, trying to bring him along, speaking to him through a dream, through his word, through Daniel, through his spirit. And finally, he lifted his eyes toward heaven. And what's the first thing that happens when you get right with God? My reason came back to me. I was able to think right. You know how Paul says we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. First thing that happens when we get right with God and are oriented with God is we're able to think correctly. Right? And without God, let me tell you, you can have all kinds of thoughts, but if they're not coming from God, they're all a mess. 
And they lead people astray. And so I love this. You know, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And as soon as I could think straight, as soon as I could think right, I blessed, worshipped the Most High God. First thing I did when I saw the truth, I became a worshiper. I became a worshiper. I worshiped God. I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Mine doesn't. All the inhabitants of the earth are like nothing compared to him. He does what he wants according to his will uh, among the hosts of heaven and among uh, the inhabitants of the earth, and nobody can stay his hand. You can't stop him. What God says in his word is going to happen, that's what's going to happen. Nobody can change it, right? And nobody can question him. What do you think you're doing? Because he's God. And so here, finally, Nebuchadnezzar gets his right mind and all of a sudden his right orientation, and he becomes a worshiper of God. And now all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar can't say enough good about God. Um, So if we go all the way back to the very beginning of chapter 4, let me just read this, and we'll end with this. But King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, this is King Nebuchadnezzar now. Peace be multiplied to you. You see the transformation? This is the guy who's like, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. I'm going to burn your house down. I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace and make toast out of you. I'm going to, you know, this is the guy. And now he's like, to all my people and all my kingdom, May peace be multiplied to you because he's had this experience. He's been transformed by the very uh, life of God. Peace be multiplied to you. I mean, it's a huge change, you know, from who he was. And then look what he says. Peace be multiplied to you. Uh, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. This whole thing is a testimony about how God interacted with him, a spiritual autobiography. Um, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar finally got it. His kingdom's not going to endure to the next generation. He's not going to survive. His kingdom's not going to survive. It's going to be taken over. And then there's all these prophecies of what's going to happen until, really, Jesus comes back. It's a great, exciting book to, to understand, and especially when you tie it together with the book of Revelation and try to figure out where we're at today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, when we think that, you know, 600 years before Jesus even came into the world, you um, began to orchestrate all of this to the point where Daniel and uh, this King Nebuchadnezzar would write all this down for people like us, the living, so that we could understand the background of our lives, that there's more going on in the world than just our little story, and that there are things that are more important, Father, than just the little... Uh, incidents that keep happening in our lives and that you are at work drawing us to yourself and wanting to remake us after the likeness of Jesus, your perfect son. And so you leave it to us, Father, as to how much we're going to cooperate and how much we're going to listen and how, much, how, how long it takes for us to hear and to surrender and to give up control like Nebuchadnezzar and to recognize that there is a God in heaven who controls the affairs of man. And once we recognize that and we're willing, Father, to surrender control of our lives to you and trust you more than we trust ourselves, then we begin to experience the blessings that you have for us. 
and the promises become real to us about the life that you have for us to live both now and on the other side of this life. And so we thank you, Father, for the richness of your word. We thank you that you're such a faithful, dependable God that we can take you at your word and yield ourselves to it. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.